This week, we're diving into the history of the medium and the promise of the future. I talk with Professor Neil Verma, the author of Theater of the Mind, and a two-part essay that's been bouncing around the audio drama parts of the internet. We've got some recommended reading and listening for this episode, and all those links are included in the show description. Buckle up, kiddos. It's time for scholarship. This is Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. Today I'll be talking with Neil Verma, a professor of sound studies and associate director of the Masters in Sound Arts and Industries program at Northwestern University. Professor Verma wrote a two-part essay not long ago called The Arts of Amnesia, The Case for Audio Drum. Now I've got links to those essays right here in the episode description, so if you want to stop playback right now, flip over to the show notes and read the pieces, you'd be welcome to. That said, I do force Neil to restate a lot of his argument through my questions, so you'll be able to follow along without having read the essays. We're also going to refer to some particular pieces of audio drama during our chat, in particular Ars Paradoxica and Homecoming. If you haven't heard either of those audio dramas, you'll still be able to keep up, but you might miss out on a few details. I've said many times that we're in a beautiful, golden age of audio fiction, and I feel so lucky to be able to share that with you and have conversations with creators and with you on the internet about things that people are making. And I think podcast fiction has begun to unlock old forms of media and new ways of interacting with that media. So does Professor Verma, and that's kind of why this show is called Radio Drama Revival in the first place, and that's why I got to talk to him. We're just starting to see scholarship about this period of audio fiction emerging, and that makes me so very excited. What's cool about Professor Verma is that he's interested in both vintage audio drama and the stuff that's being made today. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with Neil Verma, Radio Drama Scholar. Neil Verma, welcome to Radio Drama Revival. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So, I want to start by talking about ways of listening. So you said in in part one of your essay uh, that serial programs like Ars Paradoxica and Homecoming teach us to listen in old ways we've forgotten, a theater of memory. Right. How do you characterize the different styles of listening? Well, um, if you can think back probably to a lot of, the time when a lot of people who are listening to this podcast started listening to radio... And just think about the the style of of vocal work that they tended to hear. Uh, a lot of it was kind of morning zoo stuff, um, maybe a little bit of narrative journalism. But basically, almost everything you heard in the broadcast happened right up in front of the microphone. And uh, it's a bit like imagine every photograph you ever saw was a close-up. Now, this isn't what radio sounded like in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, which is sort of the period that I study. What radio sounded like then was a lot more dynamic and kinetic, uh, and things moved a lot, and some things you couldn't quite hear, and they were a little bit further away. And there were a lot of genres that exploited that, particularly things like drama, um, and particularly things like uh, subgenres of drama that rely on things like adventure or suspense. A lot of things happened really far away, um, and a lot of things happened... uh, that you were anticipating to happen. And it just is a much more, um, how should I put it? Um, uh, a much more uncertain, unstable, complicated auditory field. And one of the things that excites me about audio drama is that it seems like a lot of the people that are working in that field are rediscovering that property of radio 
that really wasn't present um, a generation ago, at least in the ears of most people who who listen to it today. So I feel like what's what's interesting about it from a historian's point of view, which is what I'm trained as, is that people are learning to listen in ways that have kind of lain fallow or in some places gone extinct. Um, it's making listening a more interesting activity than it has been in the past. So this this is roping in two ideas from your essays and from your work broadly. Um, this notion of audio position, which is, I think, in a film context, what might be termed point of view. Yeah, sure. And and Eric Barno's terms of semi-existence and potentially existence of objects and characters. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, I wrote this big book about radio drama and... Uh, what I was trying to figure out was this really unusual thing that happens in the early part of the 1940s. So in the late 1930s to the 1940s, radio drama is the most consumed form of fiction in the United States. There's a lot of it. Most people listen to radios three, four hours a day. You know, more people have radios than have indoor plumbing. Wow. So um, around this time in the late 1930s, a lot of dramas that are created are big, they take place in really large settings. They move really fast. They segue from scene to scene, from time to place really often. And there's a lot of kind of big external speeches. So you get a lot of kind of mm, political dramas and dramas about nationhood and dramas that have um, really determinate settings that you get to learn over the course of the, of the drama. And so then this thing happens around 1941, 1942, or all of a sudden, these huge dramas that have casts of thousands and span the globe start to shrink. And all of a sudden, instead, you have psychological melodramas, thrillers, gothic stories that are usually two, three characters in some uh, very small setting that's kind of claustrophobic and spooky and scary and uh, morally complicated. So um, the, the way I started to think about that was, well, in order to figure out what this change is really about, you have to be hyper-conscious of where the microphone is in the world of the fiction. So sometimes the microphone is moving across these large landscapes I was talking about, and some way, sometimes it's disappearing and reappearing in other places, and sometimes it is right over the shoulder of someone who's about to have something terrible happen to them, or sometimes it's inside the mind of a, or the consciousness of a character, which is what happens quite often in the 1940s. And so I developed this concept so, of audio position to help yeah. to help capture that idea. Would you say that prior to 1941-42 there wasn't there wasn't the same sense of character internality? Is that something that comes out of that period? Yeah, I, well so the short form I use for this kind of historical argument is that in in the 1930s uh radio drama is a theater in the mind uh in the sense that mm -hmm. you're you're trying to picture a bunch of things based on a bunch of sonic cues that you're given. But in the 1940s, it becomes a theater about the mind um, and really kind of models and concepts and anxieties about consciousness are quite, uh, quite palpably worked out in um, the characters, situations, stories, anxieties that you hear in radio dramas. So, yeah, that's that's kind of one of my, you know, historical markers. What affected that change, if anything? Was there like a technology shift? Did it was there a switch from live in studio performance to, to something else at that time? Um, well, there's the, the larger technology shifts tend to take place uh, on the other sides of this period. So, you know, in the early 1930s, most radio dramas are made with carbon-based microphones. They start to be made uh, done with velocity-based microphones. Um, 
there's there are these new big studios that are built in Hollywood in 1938, both for CBS and NBC, that have all these interesting new possibilities. And so part of that is technological, but that sort of happens early on. And then in the late 1940s, there's the advent of magnetic tape, which changes a lot of things about how radio dramas are made. Um, but in the 1940s, I really think it's a cultural shift, actually. I think that um, radio dramas are a way of kind of thinking through all these kind of deep anxieties about the media itself, uh, particularly during the war, when it's the idea was that the media was kind of a, a field of battle, um, where the mind itself was a field of battle. Uh, and this is a, a very 1940s idea that doesn't really get nuanced until the 1950s or 1960s. Is it is it also the case that there was a specific group of intellectuals producing that had just gotten up to speed? Uh, my, my, my history on this is really thin because I haven't gotten very far yet into your book. Um, but my understanding is that towards the end of the 30s, that there were these these great houses that that were built up in, I think, Long Island, right, of of a more intellectual avant-garde set of producers. Is that is that a correct summation? So there's a couple of different um, places you can kind of locate this. Uh, so in my field, the most traditional place to locate it is this radio show that was uh, created by CBS in 1936, 1937 called uh, The Columbia Workshop. And the Columbia Workshop was an explicitly experimental radio program. And it wasn't the first of its kind, but it's one of the first of its kind whose broadcasts have persisted. And it also trained a generation of broadcasters who kept making radio right into the 60s. You know, William N. Robeson, uh, for instance, is a name probably none of your listeners would know, but he started by writing uh, crime thrillers for a show called Calling All Cars, which is kind of the original true crime show. Uh, and then he went sure. to the CBS workshop and took that over. Uh, he ran that for several years. And then later on, he did these kind of blood and thunder shows like Suspense um, for a few years. He also won a couple of Peabody Awards for shows about race relations. He goes on to do things like, um, you know, uh, science fiction in the 1950s. He did Gunsmoke eventually. So, oh, wow. you know, for the few people who are able to make a career out of radio, a lot of them pass through the workshop. And so... Some of the most famous names are probably people like Norman Corwin, who um, was the best-known radio dramatist of the 1940s. Um, Lucille Fletcher, who uh, wrote uh, Sorry, Wrong Number and The Hitchhiker, which is a radio play that I think is really important. Uh, and, and of course, Orson Welles. Orson Welles got uh, – he, he did his first directing for the Columbia Workshop. Uh, he did a couple of Shakespeare plays for them. Uh, he also did a, a strange version of Les Miserables that he did uh, around that time. So um, – a lot of the people who are, whose work have have persisted over the time have come through that one program um, under kind of uh, uh, the direction of really a very small group of people. Would it be fair to say that uh, the Columbia Workshop influenced the the culture, like the by by pushing the avant garde so far? Would it be accurate to say that they had some role in determining this more? internal style of audio fiction in the 40s? Uh, yes and no. Uh, the, the important thing about the, the workshop or workshop radio in general, um, there were lots of other workshops, I should say. You know, the Mercury Theater on the Air, which was Orson Welles' show, was also thought of as a workshop show. The thing about the workshop shows is that they didn't owe anything to anybody. They didn't have to sell anything. Um, they could do a lot of unusual pieces and it didn't really matter if it was successful because the idea was to do something weird and to give other people ideas. Um, so, you know, in its heyday, the workshop would get, you know, thousands of scripts from total unknowns all around the country. 
And those people would kind of go on to have interesting careers of their own. That excites me to no end. That idea makes me so excited. Yeah. So, you know, uh, I, I knew Norman Corwin a little bit. When I wrote, when I wrote my book, I um, he was he's very old. He was probably 98, 99 years old when I interviewed him. And uh, he passed away not long ago. And uh, when I asked him about it, like he he always talked about the freedom to fail and how important the freedom to fail was. He did. He, he invented things like the essay drama. So he did this play called Anatomy of Sound, which was a kind of essay story about how to make sound in fiction. Uh, and, you know, everyone who writes about this period thinks about it as this like mythically amazing piece because it kind of prefigures a lot of stuff that, you know, famous sound people like John Cage are going to think about a generation later. Um, but he thought of it as a total failure. He said it was totally boring. And he said it had these great ambitions, but I, I fell flat. But I'm glad I'm glad I had the opportunity to fall flat. Um, and so I feel like that was a really telling thing. And to get back to your, the other point that, that you brought up, um, the other thing about this period in like 1937, 38, 39, is that this is sort of when you start getting like um, books, uh, like manuals and like how-to books and kind of popular press ideas by kind of industry professionals about how to make radio. So some of those will be like, here are how we make all of our sound effects. And some of them will be, here are some things we've discovered uh, after making radio for a long time. So the workshop um, system and, and a lot of the programs that it spawned also made people more reflective about the craft of audio. Um, and so a lot of those books have persisted, but they aren't very widely read outside of the academy. I think what excites me so much about this current cultural moment is that the production costs for radio drama or audio drama continue to drop. And it makes me really excited at the prospect of an even more democratic medium. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, nobody no, in this period, nobody made money. You know, like nobody made any money made, making radio dramas. They did it because they believed in it and they thought it was really powerful. You know, the, the poet Archibald MacLeish, uh, who made one of the most important radio dramas in history, the, the Fall of the City in 1937, he, you know, really thought that, you know, he was a poet and no one was going to hear his poems if he stayed away from the public media. Uh, and by embracing it, he was able to to write works that reached thousands and thousands and millions of people. Um, and it was a really intoxicating, powerful thing for him. Now, in his case, you know, he didn't actually write a lot of radio plays after the first couple because it was a lot of work, but he really believed in it as like a, a, a field of um, creative potential. And, you know, when a lot of scholars these days talk about current audio drama, they talk about funding models and distribution systems and technologies. And I get all that. But I, I, I really think there's something about public creativity that's kind of uh, worthwhile and interesting and important. And I feel like even when I don't particularly like a lot of stuff I, I hear, you know, the, <laughs> I, I like, I like that it's there. Like, I like that, like it's, sure. um, it's being made and I like that it, um, it, it has a certain reality to people, you know, every time I see a new work, uh, come into like the submission box on radio drama revival, I get so excited. I, I get terrified because like my submission stack is like 30 works <laughs> high right now and I haven't gotten to them. Well, it's better um, than it being empty, right? Better, So much better than it being empty. I'm, I'm so excited and, and glad that, that people are taking the opportunity to be this kind of creative in public all the time. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, um, I kind of have this ambivalence because, you know, I can point you to people in the 1950s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, all of whom say they were reviving a dead format. Right. But it's partly because um, radio doesn't have the kind of sense of memory that 
other art forms too, right? Um, if you want to be a novelist, you spend many, many years reading other people's novels. If you want to be a filmmaker, you spend many, many, many years watching other people's films. But there's a lot of broadcasters who are quite good without spending a lot of time deep in the archive of their medium. And that's not that's not a knock. It's just a fact. And it has been for a long time. And so we end up in this strange rhetorical position where it seems like it's always a baby, right? Right. Or like always right. brand new. And part of me wants to say, it's not. No, it's not brand new at all. There's all these great stuff from the past. Right. But part of me also wants to say, no, I want you to have that feeling because that enables, um, that gets certain creative juices flowing that wouldn't otherwise be there, right? Um, there's no um, pressure for derivative work. Uh, so I kind of have this ambivalence about that, you know? Can you tell me about the history of continuity in radio fiction? Do you have a sense of when we began to pin like a, a heavy continuity style of narrative on radio? Like, I, I mean, I know I have a sense from listening to, you know, Little Orphan Annie and things that were serialized that there would be little chunks of story meted out over a series of weeks. But I mean, like the sort of thing where you can't miss an episode continuity. Uh, so maybe I'll, I'll, I'll go through uh, br- really briefly the kind of early history of, of radio drama. Um, so the, the earliest broadcasts were, uh, that we know about because it's a, a giant field and we, there's a lot we don't know about because a lot wasn't recorded, but the early, earliest broadcasts that we know about, um, that had to do with drama were things like skits, uh, that were performed to promote theater pieces that were going on in different localities. So, like, your local theater is putting on um, a play, and they say, can we come into the studio? And they do a little bit of it, and that's the first kind of radio play. But it's not really written for radio. And then around, like, 1922, 23, 24, you start getting kind of written for radio pieces. So there's a famous piece called The Wolf that aired um, in Schenectady, and then uh, the first uh, BBC-commissioned you know, written for radio pieces as a play called The Comedy of Danger by Richard Hughes. Uh, And then there's a bunch of Shakespeare festivals around that time. And then as the decade proceeds, you get um, a bunch of kind of hybrid forms. So there's a a lot of uh, a lot of those kind of let's put on a a scene from this this play for the radio station. But then there's also a lot of reading aloud, like story time kind of stories, uh, kind of stuff where you have kind of these uncle figures who are uh, telling fairy tales and local legends and things like that. Uh, And so it's not exactly a radio drama. It's more like a a storytelling program. And so there's an interesting line that gets formed. And then in the early 30s, you start to get um, what we think of as kind of recognizable forms. So you get drama anthologies, often that are doing kind of um, highbrow plays, uh, you know, ranging from kind of Shakespeare and Moliere to like modern writers like O'Neill and things like that. Uh, And then you also get what we think of as the earliest serials. And those are usually kind of these social dramas. A lot of them originated in Chicago. So shows like Amos and Andy um, uh, kind of infamously are probably the most important uh, and well-known versions of the forum. You also get the earliest soap operas. Uh, So the first soap opera, according to legend, is this um, interesting show called Clara, Lou and M., uh, which was about okay. three uh, Northwestern students, actually, three women. Uh, they started out as like a little kind of stage skit that they would do, and then they brought it to uh, the NBC affiliate here, which was run by a really interesting team of people, including this uh, woman named Judith Waller, uh, who was a, a great programmer. 
an educator. Uh, anyway, so they started doing it for the radio, and it got syndicated around the country, and that becomes kind of the first model of the radio play. So we're talking about 1933, 34, 35 is when a lot of this stuff happened. Um, and this is around the same time as the birth of the modern network. So instead of just having um, a bunch of stations that are broadcasting to the localities, you have large chains that are hooked up by AT&T wires. Uh, so if a broadcast is going from New York, then they send it over phone lines to Chicago, and then we send it over the air over here. Uh, so these are not like radio dramas like you think of them as. You, they're more like um, skits. So like people who write about these often think about them. They're a lot like serial cartoon strips that you would get in the, mm -hmm. in the newspaper. That's a really good way of thinking about them. It's two or three characters. Uh, almost nothing happens. It's mostly a, a, a kind of a series of gags, so often a lot of like plays on language. And so that's kind of the, the birth of the serialized form. And then it kind of goes everywhere. You get superhero shows, you get a lot more uh, soap opera formats. And then you kind of also get these kind of uh, the, the, the great kind of showman variety shows, people like Charlie McCarthy and uh, Eddie Cantor and Jack Benny, which are, which are sort of like radio plays, but also not exactly. Um, and then, you know, kind of every format grows. So it's a bit like this moment, right, where um, people ask me what's, 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 what's going to happen in audio drama, and the answer is usually everything, right? <laughs> there'll be more of every category. If you can think of a category, there'll be more of it. Uh, and that's sort of what happens. And this is that kind of will bring you up to the moment that we were talking about a moment ago about the kind of uh, workshop radio phase uh, where all of a sudden people are like, wow, we have this amazing new medium. Let's do weird stuff with it. So I, I ask that because I'm curious about, and I know, I know you're more interested in, in the public creativity rather than the, the delivery system, but I'm curious about what you think of how the low lift digital delivery system of podcast changes the listener's relationship to text since it's so easy to replay. Yeah. Uh, it's a complicated question. Um, Audio drama is born, audio drama as we, just, as we tend to think about it today, is born long after market segmentation becomes the norm in media consumption. So in the 1930s and 40s, look, there's basically three or four networks. <laughs> so if you want to listen to the radio, you're going to listen to, you're probably going to listen to one of those and almost everyone will listen to them. Um, so that's why a lot of the things that they sell are like, coal or yeast or boot black or things that not any particular class or culture requires, but it seems like something almost everybody wants. Um, so, you know, The Shadow, for instance, is sold is, is um, sponsored by Blue Coal. So these are plays that expect to be listened to by tens of millions of people. And you can get that in their form. Um, so audio plays that I listen to don't expect to be listened to by tens of millions of people, but they do expect to be listened to by passionate people um, who are really dedicated to it. Um, so that's one thing I'd say about that is that there's there's a different relationship to the consumer because of the number. Um, and the second thing I'd say is that um, one of the interesting things I found about the shift from uh, broadcast uh, media to podcast media or traditional broadcast, terrestrial broadcasting, is that... Um, you know, if you read anything that people write about how to make radio that was published in the 1980s or 1990s or early 2000s, they're all going to tell you so much about how important the opening hook is, right? Have an opening hook, have an opening hook. It's got to get the listener. It's got to get the listener. And the reason for that is because they're, they have an anxiety that you're going to change the, the channel. 
they expect that they're in a world that's populated by easily switchable channels that are always ongoing. Whereas I think that one of the cool things that I find about a lot of podcasts, both fiction and nonfiction, is that you can have a lot of slow burn. Like you can have a lot of narratives that start out with a little bit of information and kind of slowly draw you in rather than having to grab you all at once. You know, in the 30s, they had this term coming on like gangbusters, right? Which we still have today. Oh, like the show gangbusters? Yeah, that's because the show gangbusters, at the very beginning of the show, there's all this like gunfire and explosions and like it's like a crazy riot <laughs> of material. Uh, so it literally comes on like gangbusters is to is to, you know, to throw a lot at you right away. Or if you think of the suspense serials of the 1940s, a lot of them are internal retrospective narrations, which are basically like, dear listener, I'm about to be killed. Let me tell you my story. Right. And so it's the same kind of hook. Uh, but I feel like what's cool about the the contemporary moment, about the way things are distributed, the way they're made and the way and the fact that they're narrow casted towards like a smaller group of very passionate fans is that um, it means that you can do things narratively that people in the 30s and in the 90s probably couldn't have done. Um, and and that's exciting. It kind of opens up things like pace in a way that, that hasn't been done for a long time. That's really cool. You, you reference the idea of a structure of feeling for podcasting culture, which I think comes from Marxism and literature. I'm not super familiar with Raymond Williams' Could you could you define me for that in Williams' work and then apply it to podcasting? Yeah, um, Williams's work is uh, it's complicated, but an important element for him is the concept of the convention. Uh, so uh, Williams was a Marxist theorist. He was also a theorist of drama, uh, and. He's one of the people to whom we're, we're dedicated to this notion of a convention. So uh, a style or a way of address that um, literally brings things together, both stylistic things and communities. So for him, what a structure of feeling is, is a set of conventions that literally kind of structure the feeling of the audience out there uh, in terms of channeling their expectations, their beliefs, their ideas about what can and can't happen. Uh, a structure of feeling can make a kind of world around a genre. Uh, and uh, so in his work, he, he thought a lot about that in terms of things like radio and especially television. How does television structure the feeling of the, of the, the viewing public? Uh, for instance, expect they they expect a certain quality of flow in their media, uh, and so uh, one of the things I think is an interesting puzzle to think about um, for uh, for podcasters and 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 for audio dramatists because I think that you know drama is really the playground of a medium um, is how is it that this can structure the feeling or the encounter between um, a sender and a receiver? How can it create languages that uh, give some sort of perceivable uh, field of possibility uh, in in which everybody seems to be operating. That's what I, I feel is really interesting about this moment. That like um, the conventions of audio drama aren't set yet, uh, and in setting them, you're also setting the rules by which the form will be apprehended and evolve. Can you concretize that for me? Can we can we try and bring like a structure of feeling down to a maybe a specific genre and just like trying to channel that into like the conventions of science fiction in, in podcast drama or the conventions of horror. Yeah. So, okay. Let me, let me give you a, let me give you an example. So the most boring chapter of my book um, is, <laughs> is about um, communications research in the 1940s. Uh, 
Uh, and in the 1940s, this was the moment where communications research was invented. Um, until that time, no one had ever really gone out into the field and said, hey, what newspapers do you read? Hey, what radio stations do you read? Hey, who did you vote for? What's your race, gender, class? And uh, what's your educational level? And now let's make a bunch of charts to figure out um, what media does to society. Um, that's really an invention of the radio age. So one of the things I got interested in uh, in my book was to to think about, well, this is kind of a, 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 a an interesting way of actually thinking about radio dramas, because if you boil down a lot of radio dramas, whether they're suspense shows or comedies or experimental playhouse shows or war shows, um, a lot of them can be boiled down to a kind of parable, which is a sender sends a message and the message in some way affects a listener inside the drama. And the repercussions of that activity um, are going to have vast ramifications for everything that happens in the plot. Um, and a lot of interference can happen in that. And a lot of uh, other elements can be added to that. So, for instance, in war dramas, there's often an eavesdropper. But the, the story of a lot of these dramas is the story of a message uh, and the, the whether or not the message is doing what it's supposed to be doing. And so you sometimes get people where where a message is so strong it can convince them to kill someone they love, or a message is um, so powerful it's able to overcome deeply set beliefs. Um, and so one way of that these radio dramas structured feeling in the 1940s was to make people hyper-conscious of the idea of the media message, uh, to let that enter into their lives as an element of the, the world in which they live. Um, and so that makes a lot of sense when it's like in every genre, in a, a medium that is touching everyone's lives. Um, but it's a lot harder to figure out and pin down in the contemporary moment. And that's one of the reasons why it's useful as a historical term, but not as useful as a kind of contemporaneous one. Gotcha. Well, to pull us away from the idea of a structure of feeling, but into the notion of motifs, um, I wanted to talk to you about the, the presence of physical magnetic tape in yeah. uh, modern day audio fiction. So in Archive 81 or within the wires or the black tapes, there's this repeated motif of analog sound technology yeah, yeah, that pops yeah. up. And you said it was an elegy for the medium. What did you mean by that? Uh, well, I, um, I feel like we, we live in a moment that romanticizes uh, analog media. Uh, and one of the most obvious forms of that romanticization is uh, magnetic tape, um, different forms of magnetic tape. Often it's not specified in a lot of these dramas what kind of magnetic tape is being used. Often people talk about a recorder uh, without being very particular about it. Um, but we also just hear a lot of sounds that people, I mean, I'm almost 40, so a lot of the sounds are things that I really recognize, like the sounds of a cassette tape starting and stopping. Or, And so I think it's really interesting that a lot of these radio dramas, or at least audio dramas, they have this um, uh, affectionate fascination with tape. And they also have an anxiety about producing the circumstances in which the radio drama was created, right? So in the 1940s, nobody cared if you thought that someone was recording the events you're hearing. You know what I mean? Like, it was just like, dear listener, this is what's going on. You don't have to acknowledge the presence of a, of a, of a recording device or incorporate uh, the presence of a recording device into the narrative. It's not necessary. Right. Just like in film, no one has to say, oh, hey, by the way, there's a camera following this 
ancient Scottish army. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right. Like no one no one was doing direct camera address in Braveheart. <laughs> exactly. But it seems like a lot of radio shows go out of their way to make the recording device a character in the in the play. Um, and so part of me as a cultural theorist wonders, well, maybe this is part of our cultural moment. This is the way that audio drama is expressing a certain affection for a set of technologies that are, are kind of disappearing from us. And, you know, analog is, is also just cool. You know, I, I was at a... I was at a university campus recently, and I was talking to a, an audio, um, an audio and acoustics professor, and he was telling me that you know, 15 years ago, their introductory classes were all in analog, and their upper level classes were all in digital, uh, and now it's reversed. Now all their entry level classes huh. are in digital, and you have to really be the best of the best in order to start using analog. Um, so I feel like analog has a certain kind of mystique right now, and um, part of that might have to do with this anxiety about you know I- explaining the very existence of the, the tape, um, but also part of it just I think is this interesting cultural moment where a lot of people just feel like um, this connection to kind of the the media of their childhoods. Is that is that what struck you as so fascinating about homecoming that it kind of eases you into the medium with like a justification for the existence of sound and then finally um, changes in those flashbacks to Heidi's point of view where there is no no pretense for why we're hearing it? Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of things that are interesting about, about homecoming and the way it's made. Uh, but one of them is that, uh, you know, two elements of it are very much part of this this culture of uh, of of making the recorder a character in the drama. So one of them is the the scenes uh, in the in the the counseling room where the character of Heidi and, and Walter Cruz interact, where you hear a lot of things like you know you hear a lot of stuff like this. You can hear the recorder being handled and moved around, um, and especially if you have a really good uh, pair of uh, headphones, it becomes a kind of element in the situation where you can feel it on the desk. And then there are these phone calls between Heidi and her boss. Uh, that kind of take place in the telespace of the of the computer. So it's as if the microphone is inside the computer like I'm talking to you right now. So it would be in a Skype phone call. Right. But these two elements kind of eventually seed to this moment that becomes the present of the fiction. And in the present of the fiction, neither of those two things are present. So there's no pretext as to why we're hearing Heidi, who later on in her life becomes a waitress, um, visiting her mother, living in this different town. There's no pretext to explain why the recording exists. Um, and so in a funny way, you kind of pass through audio drama and move into a much more old fashioned radio drama type of recording situation. Um, and they have this really, you know, kind of powerful, tense relationship. But also you can it changes the way you feel when you when you listen to it, where, you know, the the room recordings feel very home like. The, the computer recordings feel very claustrophobic, but the historical version, the, 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 the later on in life where she's a waitress and all that sort of stuff, that feels open, but also kind of precarious. And it seems to have all these dark edges to it. So it's, it's playing at the effective level with your experience of the podcast uh, in a, a really sophisticated way. And that's one of the things I like about it. So this is what you meant by homecoming using sound design as rhetoric then. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't have to be a genius to notice this stuff, right? I teach a lot about um, podcasts and audio drama. I teach classes in this stuff. And everybody knows what they feel. They just don't know why they feel it, right? So if you say, I don't like hearing the conversations between Heidi and her boss. All right. Well, why? What is it about the actual way it's recorded or the recording situation that contributes to the anxiety or the irritation that you feel? 
Um, and it, it, you really have to dig a lot in people's experience, but sooner or later they figure it out, right? People like to say that, that radio drama is all made up in your mind, but actually all of its elements are put there quite carefully um, by experienced and thoughtful producers. And, you know, I just wish we were as good at listening to that as we are at, you know, unpacking rhetorical decisions in a piece of prose or in a film. I'm trying, I'm trying to think about why, why Heidi and Belfast, why Heidi and Collins conversations make me so uncomfortable. Um, and I get, I guess part of it must be the claustrophobia, um, of their, of the two of them conversing and the fact that she has no agency in those conversations whatsoever, which I guess is what you allude to in the, in the essay. Yeah. 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 Like it's just, it, there's a flatness to it, right? Like, I feel like I'm in this two-dimensional space, and I can't get out of it. And I think at one time, they, the producers mentioned that they have a, a, an interest in uh, Sorry, Wrong Number, which is a, a Lucille Fletcher's radio play about an invalid who uh, overhears what she thinks of as a crossed wire of two thugs planning a murder. Uh, and she's lying in her bed, and she's making a bunch of phone calls, um, trying to get someone to do something about this. Um, and by the end, we realize that actually the murder that was being commissioned was her own and the killer comes and, and gets her. But when, when Fletcher was writing that play, she imagined it. Her, her aesthetic experiment wasn't about a neurotic uh, and it wasn't about, you know, uh, uh, the telephone system. It was about the telephone itself. She said she wanted to write a radio play from the perspective of a telephone. And I feel like that, that lesson kind of persists or there's a ghost of it. In some of these conversations uh, that we're talking about now, the the Belfast Heidi conversations in in Homecoming, where it seems like we're we're experiencing the scene from the perspective of a Skype phone call, and it's not a comfortable place to be. Not at all. <laughs> Which is part of what makes that final confrontation between Amy Sedaris's character and David Schwimmer's character so satisfying. Oh, it's so it's so satisfying <laughs> for exactly this reason. <laughs> yeah, because all of a sudden he's the one who's trapped, right? And and especially because um, it's just so unbelievably sexist. I mean, it's a textbook case of mansplaining. Um, and it's just so wonderful to feel it reversed. I, I wasn't sure where they were going with that. It seemed like the text was aware of what they were doing to Heidi. Um, but I, I couldn't, I wasn't certain where they were, where they were going to take it. I want to go back a little bit and talk about Eric Barno's um, semi-existence and potential existence and the, the notion of um, like revelation held in tension um, in audio fiction. Can you can you tell me a little bit more about Barno? And was Barno the poetics of radio drama, or is that someone else? Um, if you read my article, there's a, one, one of the things I wanted to do is to create a bibliography that people can look at if they really want to. I actually think a lot of these authors who wrote about um, radio drama in my period and beyond, they have a lot of interesting insights to say. So probably the first, the first radio theorist was this guy named Rudolf Arnheim. I wrote this book in 1936 called Radio, and he's one of the first people to think about how, well, you know, if you're, if you're imagining a, a radio dramatic scene, try not to imagine it just as a bunch of characters, try to imagine it as a bunch of voices, right? So think about it as a, as a baritone and a soprano, right? And what is the relationship between those two things? Think about it as music. So he has a lot of interesting insights like that. He also talks a lot about, about depth. And um, I think one of the most important rediscoveries of the really interesting radio, audio dramas that I listen to is the use of depth, um, rather than just thinking of in terms of binaural, uh, like 
things that go from left to right and things that go laterally, but to really use the space that's far away from the microphone as a, as a, as a useful and important dramatic space. So Arnheim is one of the people who does this. And then there's this guy, Eric Barnu, who started out as a, as a continuity writer for, I think, CBS, and then wrote a few books. He wrote this one book, uh, a handbook of radio writing, and it's 1945. And he says, you know, we've been making radio dramas. You know, he'd been involved in radio dramas for about a decade. And he's like, we've learned some things. So what have we learned? We've learned, first of all, that this is not theater. So the dominating metaphor for people in the 1930s was that this was a form of theater. Now, theater is always addressed to a public, a group of people all sitting next to each other. And he's like, that's not true. Radio is always addressed to an individual. And that's one of the things that audio dramatists in the 30s discovered. They said, we thought we were talking to a crowd, but actually we're talking to an individual. So that's one of his revelations. But another one of his revelations, which I think is especially, you know, powerful and true about what's, what's, what uh, uh, interesting radio and audio dramatists are doing these days, is that in, in audio, it's not quite clear whether things exist or not. Right? Um, any visual medium is going to have things that are present or non-present in the frame or not in the frame. But in audio, it's not quite like that. Sometimes something can be in the frame, so to speak, in the scene, and an audience member can completely forget that it's there. And then it can reappear in their mind, and that can be cued to do so by the, by the piece in one way or another. Um, moreover, we can think about potential existence of things, so when you're waiting for someone to appear on stage in a play, then they're never really there until they show up. But anticipated objects, characters, events have a different relationship in audio. They can kind of hang over events and hang over scenes in a way that doesn't really happen in visual media. This is Barnaud's theory. And so there's a lot of uh, interesting things about that. So it opens up the idea that Audio dramas can be more complicated than visual narratives, not less. Audio dramas can uh, have elements of them that suddenly become opaque and then suddenly become transparent. Um, and so it's, a, it's a, a picture of it that's kind of flies in the face of what almost anyone who you talk to about radio drama on the street will say, well, it's great, um, but it's less than something with pictures. For Barnu, it's the opposite. Mm -hmm. He thinks that things with pictures are bound in certain ways that audio dramas are not. Um, so people of his generations tended to think of it as an incredibly freeing artistic and, uh, and uh, a dramatic form that only has the semblance of not being that way, right? It's part of its, that's part of its magic to convince you that it's sure. less while it's always being more. It could break physics and geometry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some of the examples I talked about in the piece are like... Um, you know, uh, I really find Ars Paradoxica an interesting show for this because a lot of their kind of time travel riddles um, are incredibly complicated. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they're, they're hard to, to picture. But you also feel when you're, at least I do, when I'm listening to it, is that I, I, it's, it's being forgiving to, to the piece, right? You don't feel as if you have to. You can be carried along and just having a general idea of what's going on without it being irritating. And I'm not sure if that would be true in other forms. Um, so there's a lot of different ways in which this kind of the semi-existence of events, objects, and, and, and characters um, makes audio drama 
this really supple, malleable, interesting uh, uh, mode of expression that's that's almost without parallel. One of the arguments I make in the piece is that I think that the future of, of audio drama is open, but I also think the past is open. And and what I expect to happen in the future, or what I hope will happen in the future, is kind of progress in both directions. Like, I think that we'll be hearing stuff that, you know, I've never heard before or, uh, you know, couldn't have been imagined by people in my period. You know, I, I certainly hear a lot of that on shows like Serendipity and, and certainly on The Truth. I really think that um, Jonathan Mitchell is one of the... Uh, is going to leave a permanent legacy on, on this on this genre. Uh, I feel like the, the, there are shows that are going to do things like that, but I'm also just as excited about shows that, you know, ask a kind of listening of you that is similar to the kind of listening to suspense serials of the 1940s requires, you know? This is kind of a broader argument or a broader feeling I have about, about podcasting and radio these days and their relationship to one another. And a lot of people think we should move forward and a lot of people think, no, this is just continuity and... And I just feel like there's so much to be gained by the indecision that it seems like a shame to pick one direction and not the other. It's neither. It's both. Who cares? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, listen, you know, a medium in a genre crisis or in a naming crisis is usually a rich and productive medium. Uh, <laughs> you know, you know, beware the moment where everybody knows what everything is, because that's when it's going to start getting boring. I'm interested in your work for the Radio Preservation Task Force. Uh, with the Library of Congress. What can yeah. you tell me about that work? Uh, okay, so in 1996 uh, was the big deregulation of radio stations by the FCC. And that's when Clear Channel and uh, companies like that started buying up, gobbling up um, radio stations around the country. And um, what happened then was that a lot of radio stations that had personal archives or their own archives of shows they'd been doing from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, they disappeared. And so those archives devolved into a lot of different places. They, they ended up in local historical societies or in uh, college radio stations, or sometimes when we're lucky, they're in major research libraries and become well cataloged. And, and sometimes they end up uh, in someone's basement unlabeled. And they have all kinds of different formats. Some of them are transcription discs, which are you know, they look like extra large um, vinyl discs, but they're not vinyl. They're made of uh, a kind of very thin form of lacquer on top of, a, of an aluminum base. Uh, it's about the consistency of butter, so they're really fragile. There's those. There's reel-to-reels. There's cassette tapes. There's all kinds of different formats. And uh, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of such archives around the country, and nobody knows where they are or what's in them. So about uh, three years ago, a colleague of mine uh, named Josh Shepard spearheaded an effort that was led at the time by Chris Sterling, who's a very eminent historian of broadcasting at uh, um, George Washington University. And uh, they said, well, let's get everybody we know, <laughs> basically every, every uh, radio nerd uh, that has a professorial title in North America and get them to start canvassing their local areas. So calling radio stations, calling local historical societies, calling um, libraries and saying, hey, what do you have? Uh, and so they got uh, a generous sponsorship from the Library of Congress, and that's what we've been doing for the last couple of years. We've got something like, you know, 650 archives that are signed up for the initiative and um, about, I don't know, 100, 200 scholars who are kind of actively or inactively looking for different things. And yeah, the idea is to create a national inventory and to, to think about it systematically because, you know, we'll never have the, the money or the time or the interest uh, to digitize all of it. But... 
we can maybe find um, some things that are in danger or have, you know, inherent historical significance. You know, we've come across... Uh, you know, interviews with Sun Ra at some local college station or um, interviews with um, Tuskegee Airmen. Oh, um, wow. Cool. Yeah. Some of the oldest radio preachers. A lot of the material we find is like uh, religious and also uh, sports broadcasts. And some of it is like uh, just stuff we didn't even know existed. You know, like here's this Shakespeare festival that was done in Michigan this one year or things like that. So we're trying to find things like that. And uh, we're trying to figure out how we can and preserve what needs to be preserved because all of these formats are getting old and some of them can only be played once or twice. And uh, basically it's it's a kind of national inventorying effort with the hopes that it can become digitization. But once we get to digitization, that's that's a whole bunch of intellectual property law and that becomes higher than my pay grade. But that's sort of where we are right now. Sure. So yeah, that's sort of what that initiative is all about. Neil, thank you so much. Of course. I'm so, yeah, glad, yeah. I'm so glad you had fun too. All right. Well, take care and let's uh, let's be in touch in the future. Okay. Yeah. If you ever want to come back and talk about Sorry, Wrong Number or some of your favorite classic um, audio fiction pieces from the 30s. Yeah. If you uh, ever want to do like a let's listen to an old radio play and rap about it, the kind of thing, I'd love to do that. Something like that. Yes, please. That sounds fantastic. All right. If you would like to hear more from Neil Verma, professor, archivist, rabble rouser, you can buy his books. Verma is the author of the 2012 book Theater of the Mind, for which he listened to over 6,000 recordings. We cut this from the interview, but the dude basically didn't even listen to music for like five years. He's also a co-editor of the book Anatomy of Sound, Norman Corwin and Media Authorship, a collection of scholarly essays about Norman Corwin. You can find those books at your local bookstore, especially if you ask him real nice. If you have written a scholarly article about audio fiction, for example, and you'd like to talk about it on the show, shoot it my way. You know how to reach me. We're at Radio Drama on Twitter. Okay, we are running out of time, my friend, so you know what to do. Rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends about the show, and if you're just kind of listening to these things as a one-off, come on, you can do it. Subscribe. All right, that does it for us this go-round. Time for some credits. Our theme music is Danger Did You Do by DJ Stranger Danger. Our line producers are a thin form of lacquer on top of an aluminum base around the consistency of butter, also known as Eli McElveen and Matthew Boudreau. Our researchers are hidden national treasures locked in a vault under a library, also known as Heather Cohen and Monique Boudreau. Our executive producer is a new form of listening and an old form of listening, a bullet traveling forwards and backwards at the same time, also known as Fred Greenhouch. I'm your host, David Reinstrom, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome.